Well, good morning. Last Sunday, I spoke about living in the freedom of the new covenant, and I wasn't able to get it all, all that I wanted to say into one sermon, and so I said we will split it into two. I'll give you a heads up, I wasn't able to get into two sermons because there's some really, really neat stuff. And I thought, I don't want to just squash that in at the end, let's give it some space. So that's going to be in part three. But the goal today is that when you really understand the new covenant, it will transform your life, bring you into a new freedom, and enrich your relationship with God. Sadly, it's rarely explained, and most Christians are not entirely free from the old covenant. So our goal is to bring us into the new. And I'd like to do three things. I'd like to talk about the problem of James. What not James saying that it's about good works and not grace? Uh, I'd like to talk about Jeremiah 31 where we have the new covenant prophesied, and this is going to be the bulk of the message today, and then we're going to ask, how does this apply to us? What does this mean to us? So just a quick recap of last week. Last week we went through Genesis 15, and we saw God making a covenant with with Abraham, and a covenant is not like a contract, a contract that you sign and it's a kind of formal legal thing. A covenant is a relationship that's very, very serious. The commitments are permanent. They're, li- they're lifetime commitments. And what we saw last time was we did that little reenactment um, with with God and Abraham, and we started off with, we read the passage and we started with seeing how Abraham was asked to split animals into two and to take these animals and to lie them out in a row of animals cut in half. And this is a very strange thing for us. We don't usually do this kind of thing. But in their culture, and we have, we have evidence from surrounding cultures that this was a thing that they did. If you want to make it really, really dead serious what you're doing, it's a commitment. Then, then you actually say, if I do not follow through on this, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. And to show my seriousness, I'm going to walk between those pieces. And that would be like a very, very visual state of your commitment to keeping these promises. And so Abraham was told by God to cut these animals and to lay them out. And Abraham's thinking, what's going to happen? Well, usually in a covenant, both parties walk between the pieces. The, 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 two group, the two people who are making an agreement both walk through and they both made promises. But what was strange in this one is that a smoking torch symbolizing God moved through the pieces of the, of the, the animals while Abraham was actually put into a deep sleep. What did this mean? This mean that God was saying, actually, it's all on me. You you don't actually have any requirements. You trusted, you had faith, and that was the requirement that I gave you. And you don't have to fulfill anything. I'm actually going to do everything. And uh, may I cease to become God if I fail to, to bring about my promises to you. And so this is an incredible covenant. And we saw that uh, this covenant 
um, is one of, of three major ones in the Old Testament. This covenant, which we can call covenant of grace, it's a picture of the new covenant. And it's very different to a covenant that was made later when the Ten Commandments were given and, and the nation of Israel were in the wilderness and God gave them the law. But it's similar to the new covenant that we're, we're under. And uh, what we what we looked at was um, then we looked at the the old covenant, the one with, with the God gave to Israel through Moses. And basically it was lots of things. You do this, you do this, you do this, and I'll bless you with finances, I'll bless you with, with lots of children and animals and lots of good things, and I'll keep you safe, and you have to do these things. And if you don't do these things, then you'll be impoverished, you'll have famine, and eventually your nation will be destroyed. And it was a very much a conditional work, so you have to do this. And that stands in contrast to the covenant that God made with Abraham, which was a one-sided covenant. All that was required from Abraham was that he had faith. And it said that that faith was accounted to him as righteousness. So uh, what we see then is that these two covenants are there Um, two kinds of covenants are there in the Old Testament. There's a few other covenants. There's one with, uh, with Noah. There's one with, um, David and a couple of other places. There are some covenants, but these are the main places where they're, they're laid out. Now, uh, I talked about then how, how faith is opposed to works. Faith is the new covenant works as the old. But a problem comes up. What about James? Doesn't James say that faith without works is dead? Well, how are we going to handle that? James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So there's a problem. He says, what? And then he goes on. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Hang on, James. That was a lot later. He was justified here in Genesis 15, way before he had Isaac. What are you talking about, James? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Faith was completed by his works. That's interesting phrase. We'll come back to that. Um, scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. That was Genesis 15. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So this has been a problem for many people. And they've said, um, actually, you know, all this stuff about just faith, um, it's actually, that's kind of not really the full truth. And I want to say it is the full truth because what James is talking about here is actually the evidence that the faith is real. And I'm going to just give you some bullet points on this. When we have faith, We're given a new heart alive by the Spirit. And I'm going to be talking about this later. A changed life is the evidence of this new heart. Good works do not save us, but they are evidence of the faith that saved us. So if you don't have any good works, 
that means that you actually don't have a new heart, and so you never had faith. So the good works don't save you, they're just a pointer to show what is inside. Faith without works can only be a dead faith. But our relationship with God is based on our faith. So when you come to God, this is the really important thing. When you come to God, you don't say, oh God, look, I've, I've, I've done pretty well today. Look at these good things. You know, I've read the Bible. I've given lots of money to charity. I've done this. That's not what you come with. You come with God. You come, God, I trust you. I may mess up all the time, but I trust you and you are my savior. And that is what God is looking for. Um, that, all James is pointing out. James trying to deal with an issue of people who claim they have faith and yet their lives are just just pagan like they were before. And he's trying to deal with that problem. So I hope that resolves it for you, that it doesn't diminish the strength of the story of Abraham. It is still just faith that God is looking at in his relationship with you. So that was that's my first point. That's just quickly to get that out of the way. James and good works. And now I'd like to focus the main part of what we're doing today is on this prophecy of a new covenant that we have in Jeremiah. And I'm going to start by introducing it from the book of Hebrews. And and I just want to say that the, the new covenant is what it means to be a Christian. They are the same thing. The, being a Christian and being under the new covenant is the same thing. So let's have a look at Hebrews chapter 8. And first of all, it introduces this quote from Jeremiah. But now Jesus has obtained a superior ministry since the covenant he mediates is also better and based on better promises than the one. He's talking than the one with Moses and the Ten Commandments and Israel and all their laws they had. For the first covenant had been faultless, no one would have looked for a second one. But showing its fault, God says to them, look, the days are coming, says the Lord. And this is now the quote from Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will complete a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. And now we have the main panel that we're going to be basing today's message on. And um, it's introduced, verse 10, for this is the covenant I will establish with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Now, there's four points to this, and we're going to go through each of the four. And um, down the right side there is the scripture. The, the, the panel on the left there is my, my um, summaries. That's not inspired. That's um, just my words. But um, the right side is the scriptures, and... We're going to go through and really, really try and get this in our hearts, not just up on the on screen or on a page, but into our hearts. A, uh, God's law written in our hearts. I will put my laws in their minds and I will inscribe them on their hearts. B, we will belong to him and he will belong to us. I will be their God and they shall be my people. C, no need for priests between us and God. There will be no need at all for each one to teach his countrymen or know, or each one to teach his brother, say, know the Lord, since they all know me from the least to the greatest. And the last one, our sins are forgiven, for I'll be merciful towards the wrongdoing and their sins. I will remember, their sins I'll remember no more. 
When he speaks of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. Now, what's growing obsolete and aging is about to disappear. And what he's talking about there is the temple worship, which is the old covenant, was about to end forever because the Romans were going to come and destroy the temple a short time after this was written. So I'm going to start by talking about the first one, God's law written on our hearts. Um, so have you ever been driving along a street with, with, with railroad with the streetcar tracks in it, and you realize your your wheels are kind of caught in the tracks there. And you can kind of feel something else is driving you. There's a tendency to go one way. Well, this is what it's like. This is what our hearts are like. They have a tendency to go one way. And because of the fall, we all have a tendency to go the wrong way, a tendency to draw, to go into a place that we, we shouldn't go. And what this is about is he says, I'll actually give you a new heart for your basic, there's a basic force in there that takes you naturally to go in the right place. And um, when someone comes becomes a Christian, God puts the spirit in their hearts and gives them new life. That's why we're called New Life Church, because it's all about salvation is new life, which is the gift of the spirit, which is a new heart. That is what it's all about, is having the heart of God in you and wanting, so naturally wanting to do his will. Um, so uh, that's, that's what it means. Now, let me give you an example. The main command in the new covenant is what? What's the new commandment that Jesus gave us? Love one another. And that is, uh, so, so, uh, when God gives, gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, it produces the fruit. This gift produces the fruit, and, and, and the Spirit gives us a love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, all the gifts we read of in Galatians 5. Um, we, we naturally get this. this now, that doesn't, doesn't mean to say that we always do it, but it means there's a force inside us which will urge us and will want to do it in that direction, which will feel natural to do. Fundamental change in our very nature. Uh, I'll tell you an, uh, an illustration. Some of you may have heard this before, but it's a good one, so you're going to hear it again. So a number of years ago, I was out on our deck, and those of you who've seen our deck will know that there's a basement window over one side that's to let the light through. The deck has got a piece of plexiglass to allow it through to the basement window underneath. And I was out on the deck and I saw a movement under that glass. And I thought, hey, nobody's supposed to be under my deck. What is that? And I went over there and there was a huge butterfly trapped under the deck. And I assume it had crawled under the, the deck as a caterpillar and metamorphosized into a, into a butterfly underneath and, and flown up and gone for the light. And this was the nearest light. And so I lifted the plexiglass up and guess what the butterfly did? It just flew away up into the trees and it was gone, enjoying the freedom. So um, I didn't have to. I didn't have to tell it. I didn't like have to force it to because that's its nature. Now imagine um, I take a caterpillar and I say, "Okay, we're going to teach this caterpillar how to fly. We're going to give it flying lessons." Okay, we're going to teach it how to fly. Is that going to work? No, it's not because there's something fundamentally different. Now that doesn't mean to say we can't be trapped in wrong behaviour. 
even though we're Christians, but there's something about us which is new and it, it's, we have this new life in us which will naturally want to go this way. And this is what it means to have this new life. When he says, I'll put my laws in their minds and I will inscribe them on our hearts, this is what it means. So, um, uh, so what, what I would say though is that there's, there's a, a group of, of Christians who, uh, who feel that because they're not under the law anymore, they don't have to obey the law. You know, you can do whatever you like. It's called antinomianism and, and you can, you can do whatever you like. And that's absolutely wrong because although, um, the commandments, uh, we're not under the law, yet they are an expression of how God, what God desires. So let me, let me ask you. Moses brought ten commandments. How many commandments did Jesus give? Does anyone know? Well, it depends how you count. How many commandments are there in the New Testament? Well, somebody's cataloged 1,050 commandments in the New Testament. Now, uh, did Jesus have a higher standard for keeping the commandments? Um, uh, were, were, are the New Testament laws harder to keep than the Old Testament? Is it easier to to forgive one another, to love your enemies, than it is to like not eat pork? So it's it's harder. So I'm going to suggest to you that um, um, that actually um, there are more commandments in the New Testament. In fact, I would say that actually the commandments are replaced with a person. Somebody said this to me uh, many years ago, and I start with I thought, what does that? And I said, click. Well, that is perfect because Jesus said, follow me. And he is the, so it's not a matter of checking off boxes, but follow me is the new commandment. And following him means that we're actually following a person. He is the demonstration of how to please God. Moses never said, follow me. And, uh, this, so the, the, this goes far beyond the written list of rules. So how can we possibly do it if there is, there are so many things. Well, let me say, I've got a, a, a simple and I hope clear answer to this. Um, the key thing that has changed is not so much the law. I mean, it's still wrong to kill, to murder and so on, to, to steal. Um, it's our relationship to the law. Let me give you an, an illustration to, to try and explain this. So um, this this here, this is, um, this is, um, Charles and Camilla. And, uh, there's, uh, I, I heard about a guy who works for Camilla. He does, he, he, he does all kinds of, of things. He, he drives her car, he chauffeurs her. He does all kinds of things. Uh, it's a full-time job. And he job, he does his job well. And he's meticulous in, all the requirements he has. I don't know if he has to make cups of tea for her, but I'm sure if he does, he knows exactly how she likes her tea and makes it exactly how it should be. So um, eventually, um, probably, uh, Philip is going to become the... Uh, sorry, Charles is going to become the King of England. And uh, apparently, um, Camilla will become the Queen Consort. And uh, so, you know, there'll be... There'll be 
royalty. And I want you to imagine that, uh, that, um, that Charles uh, passes away before Camilla does, and she's left bereaved, and uh, she suddenly notices this guy who's looking after her so well and falls in love with him, and eventually they marry. Now, so so just imagine the situation, and this guy, he now... So does he say, oh, I don't need to bother to make her a cup of tea like how she likes it now, because I don't work for any more. Does he say that? No, he doesn't. Does he do the things that she likes still? Absolutely. Has has his motivation for doing it changed? Absolutely. He's doing it out of love and not out of law. And so I want to say that it's not the law that's changed for him. It's his relationship to these requirements. And this is an illustration of what it's, how it changes for our relationship to God. We serve him because we love him not because we will be punished for not doing it. And so uh, this, is, and this is what it means to have the law written on our hearts. It means to have the desire to serve God and do what pleases him written on our hearts and we're acting out of love. So when there's something that Jesus asked us to do, like love our enemies, we can think, you know, this is tough to love this person, but you know, this is what Jesus wants me to do. And Jesus is my, he's my savior. I love him. I'll be with him forever. Anything he wants me to do, I will gladly do because he is the one who I'm joined to for eternity. So, uh, so this is the first part of the new covenant. And I hope that you can see this radical nature of our relationship to the Lord changing because of love, love for him written on our hearts is what derives it. Um, what about what empowers it? Well, Jesus gives us lots of, uh, of illustrations of it. Probably the clearest is the vine and the branches. He says, you can't bring forth fruit unless you're joined to me. He says, I'm the bread of life. We had an illustration of that earlier with breaking bread. It's an emblem of, of like feeding on Christ. He is the one who empowers us through his spirit as we feed on him. And so what he would say is, no, you, you can't in your own strength do this, but I'm not only giving you a new heart, but I'm empowering you to do this through being joined to me. And, and so this is really the key empowerment of the new covenant. I then ask you a question. Could you run the country like this by, by grace and not by law? Say, so we're not going to have a speed limits on the highways. We're just going to tell everybody to, to drive with love and care. And we're not going to have enforce the stop lights and so on. Just could we, could we run a country like that? I don't think we could because we don't have, unfortunately, a country where the law is written on our, on our hearts. And so uh, that's a, a limitation that we have um, to those who have membership in the New Covenant. So the second part of the New, the, the new Covenant is, um, I will be their God and they will be my people. And almost like, this is almost like the essence, the core of it, because it's saying we're brought into God's family. We were his enemies. We were in rebellion. Now we're brought into his family. He's ours and we are his. This is like love language. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. In Song of Solomon 6.3. This is a security. We belong to him. He belongs to us forever. 
this is, this is the, I think, the heart of the new covenant because everything else flows out of that. If you're joined to God for eternity and nothing can separate you from him, what can go wrong? What else is there to worry about? So that is, it's my shortest point, but it's probably the most powerful. And um, just think of God going between the pieces of the animals. It's not dependent on our feelings. Sometimes we can feel, you know, I, I'm not feeling enough love for God today. There's something wrong. That's not what his love for us is dependent on. It's not dependent on us trying to work up feelings or to... to uh, this is the whole point of better promises that this writer of Hebrew says. These are better promises than the laws of Sinai. Um, so this is security. Um, this is what we can hang on to and the storms of life. Later on in Hebrews, it calls it an anchor within the veil. So that's the second part. The third part, there will be no need at all for each one of you to teach his countrymen or each one to teach his brother, saying, know the Lord, since they will all know me from the least to the greatest. What's it saying here? What God still gives teachers to his people, um, we're told it's one of the gifts of the Spirit. There are teachers. But what's radically new in the New Covenant is that they are to be listened to with discernment because all believers have the Spirit. So when I'm preaching to you now, I'm speaking to a community of people who are Spirit-filled community. And you have the the ability and also you have the the duty and requirement to judge what I say and to say, does this, is this what the word is saying? Does this, does this, uh, is this feel what is, what the spirit is saying to me? Because, because, um, uh, the, in the new covenant, I, the, the, I can't get up and say, thus saith the Lord. In the old covenant, the people were very vulnerable. They were at the mercy of the, the prophets and the, and the priests. Uh, who were the only ones that God gave direct, spoke directly to, and then they had to speak out to the people. And how were the people to know? Well, they were told, you know, if they go against what's previously been written, you'll know they're wrong. Um, and this is why Old Testament prophets were judged so severely when they spoke things that God had not given to them. But in the New Testament, we are told to judge prophetic words, and we're told to judge um, teaching. So in Paul in his epistles will say things like, those who are spiritual among you will know what I'm saying is right. That's the Apostle Paul. And he's saying, you know, like here, you know, if you're spiritual, you know this is the truth. And he's holding it out to them for judgment. And unfortunately, we have, we have this misunderstood in the church today, and we have cults, we have false teaching, people blindly following leaders in, into, into dark places because they, something doesn't feel quite right, but they think, well, I shouldn't call into this a question because, you know, this is the man of God. He's speaking, he's speaking, um, from God. And that is not how things should function in the new covenant. Um, uh, God's written word is still our primary authority, but all of us can read and understand it through the Spirit in the New Covenant. 
Because all of us who are new creation, new believers, or in Christ have the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, in Old Testament times, if someone wanted to know God's will, they, they had to go to a prophet. You know, even David, uh, King David, he wanted to know what he should do uh, after the, the his, his city was destroyed, and he, he asked a prophet what to do. And like, nowadays, like, each one of us can come to God directly and ask God, for guidance, and of course we should talk to others as well. But it's like it's it's a fundamentally different thing. Uh, often this is a responsibility that we would rather not have. It's so much easier just to follow a leader and say, you know, I'm just going to go to this church and whatever they say, I'm just commit to them, and and uh, we'd like to do that because then we don't have to think. But that's not what we're called to do. We are called to be new covenant believers, who all of us are empowered with the Spirit. And uh, the other thing that's that's true is that Christ is leading us directly. Christ is our priest. We don't have priests between us and God. And so um, Jesus said to his disciples, let no man call you teacher, let no man call you rabbi, let no man call you father, saying that, that, that religious titles are wrong. And yet we have so many churches where people have religious titles. I mean, I, I don't like people calling me Pastor Andrew. And you know that if you ever try calling me that. <laughs> because Jesus has told me not to allow that. You know, somebody today emailed me and called me a priest. And I, I'm back, I, I would rather not be called a priest. I'd like to follow Jesus' command here. And because that is not just uh, some words. It's really dangerous because you're putting me at a higher plane spiritually um, and you and and actually you can relate to God just as well as I can relate to God we don't relate to God any differently we all we have a we have one high priest Jesus Christ who's replaced all the priests and we relate to him and so what this number c really is saying it's no hierarchy there's no hierarchy each one of us relates to God directly through the Spirit. Of course, we can learn from one another. We have different gifts. We, we, we bless one another through the gifts that we're given. Um, but Christ is our leader. Um, now, of course, leaders should be honored. The, the, the Paul tells us that. They're, they're gifts to the church, but so are all the gifts. They're all, they're all to be honored. So that's number C. Number D here, our sins are all forgiven. And this is the one that I, I really want you to speak deeply into your heart because this is the one that I feel contag- uh, drives people into depression and uh, discouragement and not entering into joy. Um, and and I, I really, I really uh, want to push this, this point home very, very strongly. But before we get into that, um, you might say, well, how were people in the Old Testament saved? If sins being forgiven is new covenant, what about the old covenant? Well, actually, Hebrews tells us that in fact, the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of lambs, never saved anybody. They were just pictures of Jesus. It's only by Jesus' blood. And if you like, they were prophetic of a future sacrifice Jesus was going to make. And so they were right to make the sacrifice God commanded, but that didn't actually save them. It was Jesus' Jesus' death coming back in time was what saved them. Um, they were saved under the promise of the new covenant. 
which they, they didn't completely understand some of them and knew a little bit about it through faith. But there was no assurance that you were forgiven in the old. Even David, you know, when David, um, he committed adultery and murder and he, he wrote the psalm of, you know, forget, of, of repentance and so on. But he said, God, please take not your spirit from me. Please forgive me. And he didn't know in the way that we can know that he had been forgiven. His sins had been, been completely taken away. And so you could spend your life worried and anxious about God, whether God would accept you. Had you fulfilled the sacrifices? Had you sacrificed for every sin? Had you done everything? Um, but unfortunately, Many Christians live their lives today full of condemnation, guilt, anxiety over our failings, feeling uh, of being inadequate, failing God all the time, a sense that God's angry with us, that he's disappointed with us. And if there's nothing you remember from this message apart from this, I want you to remember this because this is what robs us of our joy, feeling that God is disappointed in us, feeling that God looks at us and says, ah, oh, you know, Mark, I had such high hopes for you, but look at you, the way you're living your life. And you hang your head and you, and you, and you think, ah, oh, you know, I'm just such a waste of dust. God must, you know, he must almost regret that he gave Jesus for me because I'm such a failure. And that is not the new covenant. The new covenant is God has already forgotten your sins. Uh, uh, let's imagine if it's possible that Mark sinned in some kind of way before he came to church today. And you, God says, I've already forgotten that. It's gone. Sins? No, no, I'm sorry. That was before. That's gone. Like he's forgotten. So when you come to him, now it's, it's true, we should ask forgiveness of things that we've done. But when, but God has already forgiven us. He says, I sin, I will remember no more. I will remember it no more. And I think that this is the key thing I want you to take away. Um, at the, this is, this is free, a free gift that all we have to do is to trust and accept it by faith to say, God, I believe you that you've done this. Um, if you, God is not counting your sin. God is not counting it. God's not saying, oh, you did this yesterday and this and this and this. And He's not doing that. Um, he's chosen what you do wrong today. He's chosen to forget that tomorrow. Now, that doesn't mean to say there won't be consequences. If you get drunk and crash your car, you might discover that the police remember it tomorrow. And, you know, there are fines to pay and things like that. And sometimes God wants us to get out of a sinful lifestyle because he loves us and allows us to get the consequences of our lifestyle uh, in order to, to to learn from that but um but he's actually in terms of our relationship it's forgiven i was once taking a taking a course and i knew a lot of you were studying at the moment and um when i went into the exams um there'd been several quite a few assignments in this course and i went into the exams and uh as, as I went in, I thought, I looked at my, my grades that I'd got on my assignments and I looked at the breakdown of, and I thought, hey Andrew, you've already passed. What do you have to worry about? Like, you actually don't even have to bother to attend this exam. How does that feel? Well, it feels pretty good. I mean, I did attend the exam out of the kindness of my heart, but, but, but you know what? 
That's what it feels like. And I want to tell you, that's what it's like for you with God. You've already passed. Like, it's great if you live a good life today and you serve God. But like, that's not going to affect where you're going to spend eternity. You've already passed because of what Jesus has done. You are already there. What a relief that was when I discovered that. Like, I remember walking up the stairs to where I was going to take the exam and just thinking like, ah, oh, I can just have fun in this exam because it's, it's done. And like, and this is, this is, this is the relief that can come over us. Not a relief that causes us to, to, to sin, but a relief that enables us to just have joy in our lives. Uh, so that sums up those four things, and I'd like now to uh, to um, talk about number three, living in the joy of the new covenant. I've begun to talk about this a little bit, but I want to say that um, some of you may have heard of, um, of, uh, of the, the, uh, the preacher Terry Virgo, and whose really life mission is to preach this gospel. And he was once preaching it in a church, and a man in the back of the church interrupted him and shouted out, this is the most scandalous thing I've ever heard. Um, and Terry said, well, sir, you very, really, very nearly understand it then. Because it really, this is a dangerous truth. And uh, people are often offended by this teaching and they were when Paul taught it. If you read the book of Romans, Paul is interject. When Paul, when Paul preached, um, in, in fact, in those days when every, everybody preached, we, they didn't have monologues. There, there was an interaction. When you can see when Jesus was teaching, there would be an interaction when Paul was doing the same thing. And, uh, I try and have a bit of interaction going as well when I can. But, um, when Paul was in the synagogue, he'd be teaching and people would sort of shout out in the same kind of way. And do you remember in the book of Romans when he taught this, what he puts in, what their reply would be, what the interjection would be? Do you remember what it is? Yes, that's it. What? Shall I sin so that grace will abound? So like if God's grace is, is um, God's grace is wonderful because it forgives sins. So the more that I sin, the more it lifts God's grace up. And, and that is one of the things that, so they said that to Paul. So if this, if this concern doesn't come up in you, then I'm not preaching this right. So this concern should come up in you. Well, what's the motive for living right then? Like what motive should there be? Well, let me tell you, the simplest way of, of, of arguing this is the, four, the, the new covenant comes as a peace. You can't have one peace without the other. You can't have the forgiveness without the new heart. If you have a new heart, you won't want to be sinning. So the person who says, um, uh, you know, I'm just going to keep on sinning because, you know, that's a free ticket, then they are not a member of the new covenant because they don't have a new heart, so their sins are not forgiven. So these things are connected together, and that answers this problem, and it also answers the problem in James. Um, this is a dangerous truth, and if I don't preach it in a way that sounds a bit dangerous, I'm not preaching it properly. So um, I think that uh, what we need to do also, as we apply this, is to apply it to our relationships um, with others, 
not remembering the things that they've done beyond when we should. I once had a friend who, um, a few months before, I'd done something to upset them, and uh, and this came up again. And I said, um, oh, excuse me, we, didn't we talk about that when it happened? And he said, yeah. I said, and didn't I, I apologize and say, please forgive me? And you said, yeah, I forgave you. I forgive you. I said, yeah. I said, well, why are we talking about it now? And they said, oh, right, okay. <laughs> I won't talk about it again. Because, you know, we if you hold something against somebody and you keep bringing it up and you don't forgive them, then you're not showing the love of God to others in this way. Um, and you, we have the opportunity in our life, if you're a supervisor in a workplace, for example, you've got the opportunity of living out this kind of love to people in a way that makes them makes them feel, obviously people need to be taught to do the right thing, but um, I, I remember hearing a, a supervisor who, who said, um, there's something went wrong and they just said, let's pretend this didn't happen, I'm not going to remember this tomorrow. Because they realized the person didn't mean to do it. And, and that is just so freeing for the person that you're speaking to. So I just want to suggest to you that, that you act this out in your own life. I'm not saying that people should always get off free for everything they do wrong. Um, you know, sometimes people need discipline, but this is this is uh, somehow we can act it out. So, just to summarise, then, if you're a member of the new covenant, you have a new heart that, like a butterfly, wants to soar. You're God's beloved; He is your beloved, and you're secure in the relationship. You relate to God directly, not through priests. You are totally forgiven and God is never judging you or condemning you. How do you become a part of the new covenant? Um, You become a part simply by trusting God, uh, just like Abraham did. Abraham wanted to be brought into the new covenant. He trusted God and God says, if you do these two things, then he will make this covenant with you. Just ask him to bring you in and trust him. He will make this covenant with you. So I want to end now just by going over our response one last time. God's requirement for you is that you trust him with your life. Do this and he will take care of everything else. And I want you to get really get hold of the statement that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we acted out that scene with God and Abraham last week. And if you didn't, if you weren't there, you can watch the video, it's online. And I wanted to do that physically because I wanted you to have a visceral experience of seeing this enactment of only God going between the pieces and really get it that this is something that God takes on and he carries this for us. We need to respond to this message and particularly I want to speak to the parts of you and all of us have a part in us which is condemning us. All of us have a part. If you don't have that part in you, I would suggest that you, you've already gone to heaven. You're already, you're not, you're not a human being. Because you have a part that says you're not doing 
you're not doing as well as you should do. You're, 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 you're a bit of a failure. You know, you're, there's something, there's something wrong with you. All of you have got that part in you. And that part is what Satan uses to, to push you down. Satan will get hold of that and he'll, he's the, he's the accuser of the brethren. And he'll get onto that and he'll say, oh, you're, you're a waste of time. You know, God doesn't. And that is the, that is so damaging, so destructive to all of us. You know, in the very worst cases, it makes us self-harm. It makes us uh, to do to to, to, to self-sabotage, and uh, it in it, it, it's uh, such a damage th- damaging thing, and it just destroys our joy. So I want you to speak to that part and say, "No, that part is gone." God has said, "I will remember your sins no more." He has said. He has said, you are my beloved. You are loved forever. Nothing will separate us. And I'm not measuring you on the basis of how well you do stuff. All I'm measuring you is on the basis of whether you're trusting me and and just leaning on me. Um, some people get hung up on, well, am I trusting God enough? Like, have I got enough faith? And just remember what the man said to Jesus. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You know, that's what you should say. It's not about having enough faith. Just believe and ask God to help give you more faith. Um, that's all he's asking for. So I want to say to you that to this part of you that feels like a failure all the time, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I feel like we should say that together. I'm going to get Dan to come up now. He's going to close close us with a song. But let's, I'd just like to say that together. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for this wonderful, amazing, inexplicably wonderful covenant that you've made for us, where you've given us a new heart, where you've, you've said that we are yours forever, that nothing will separate us, that we are your beloveds and you are ours. And you've taken away all hierarchy and you have erased all our sins from your memory and you will see us just as perfect and lovely. Lord, we thank you for this. Lord, I pray for each one of us here that those those may be written on our hearts and that we will walk in the joy of this knowledge and not in the in the in the despair of the accuser and the darkness of the accusation but in the joy of the freedom we have in you. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our savior. Amen.